We're going to go ahead and get started. And uh, I may actually finish uh, the study in Ephesians today. Um, I'm not sure if I'll get through it all, but uh, I want to talk to you briefly about things that we're going to be covering between now and the end of the year. Uh, the first thing is I'm going to be doing a short series on the gospel, and I'm going to be defining what is the gospel and talking about some different aspects of the gospel and maybe looking at it from a couple of different perspectives so that everybody, number one, has a good understanding of what it is for your own personal (coughs) benefit and edification and salvation. And uh, and then furthermore, that you might understand completely and, and more thoroughly what all of the aspects of the gospel are that really need to be communicated when you're talking to people about how to be saved. And uh, so I'm going to do, uh, well, just a comprehensive view of the the actual message of the gospel itself. And uh, and then also, I'm going to be talking a little bit about eschatology. Eschatology. Who knows what eschatology is? (coughs) Somebody want to tell me? Study of the end times. Okay, there we go. Study of last things. Right. So going to be talking very specifically about the millennium. What is the millennium? Is there a millennium? Um, And talking about some different views on the millennium. And um, and then furthermore, uh, I'm I'm probably going to go into, uh, well, uh, at least a lesson or two on premillennialism. And I'm going to be discussing some various different views within premillennialism. And uh, although I will also be talking about postmillennialism and amillennialism uh, and kind of define those for you and kind of help you understand what they are, why they are, why all these different positions, why people hold them, what are some of the arguments for and what are some of the arguments against each of the different millennial positions. And uh, so I hope that uh, that will also be, uh, well, edifying for you and helping you to understand what what all these issues are and how how should we see some of these uh, doctrines of of end times, doctrines of last things. And uh, so I hope that you'll come for that. I think that uh, that we'll actually cover things that many of you have never heard about that uh, maybe there will be a perspective that uh, you've never quite seen before uh, uh, on end times. Uh, There seem to be certain views that pervade the modern evangelical church, and and, uh, I would just like to challenge you to have a biblical view of last things and maybe kind of give you some tools and some some framework for, for getting there. So uh, I'm encouraged about that and look forward to that. I need to grab this. Okay. May I ask, is there anything specifically that you would like for me to address that possibly you struggled with that might be... um, an essential, an essential doctrinal issue. Anybody at all? 
what day is Christ returning? (laughs) 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 On the day that he comes. (laughs) At the resurrection. (laughs) Do you mean having to do with that or generally speaking? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm moved on from last things. Now I'm asking... Is there any specific, essential, doctrinal issue that you would like for me to address sometime between now and the end of the year? Okay. Can we think about it for a week? Uh, sure. Sure. As a matter of fact, if, if something crosses your mind, send me an email or call me or catch me in the hallway or and uh, let me know. Okay? Okay. With that, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. God, we thank you for the life that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the family that you've given us. We thank you, God, for the great salvation that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus, which washes away all of our sins. Oh, Lord, we thank you for such a privilege as even knowing about this glorious blood which cleanses us. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of of being your called, your chosen, your people whom you love, whom you have set your love upon. We thank you, Lord, for all of the good things that you're working in our life to make us holy and to sanctify us. We thank you, Lord, for every circumstance that you bring our way. We thank you, Father, for your good provision to us. We thank you, Lord, for your holy word and for your blessed Holy Spirit, which lives inside our hearts. Lord, today we are filled with thanksgiving. We ask, Lord, that as we study your word, that you would give us clear insight Give us spiritual wisdom and understanding, Lord, we pray. Oh, Lord, give us discernment and help us to know good from evil, right from wrong. Give us wisdom, we pray, oh God, to live our lives in a manner that pleases you. We thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay. Okay, so with that, we're back in our study of Ephesians, and I'm going to go ahead and read today from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. I'm going to read on through the end of the chapter so that we can get the context of our lesson today. Hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand." Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. I didn't mean to throw you for a loop there. But I have my new King James Bible with me this morning. <laughs> so I have been reading from the NASU every week. This week I read from the New King James. Uh, but of course the notes and the handouts are prepared with the NASU. Okay. So with that, we are uh, uh, right in the middle of an understanding of the armor of God. And uh, last week we talked about the uh, first three pieces of armor, starting in chapter 6, verse 14 there, where it says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so we talked about the fact that uh, these were the devices that were worn at all times on the battlefield. And that they were to be distinct from the last three pieces of armor, which is the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the word of God. In the panoply of the Roman armor, the soldier would always wear his breastplate. Even when they weren't in battle, when they were just in the camp, he would wear his breastplate. And he would wear his shoes. And um, he would have his garments girded up because he was to always be ready for the battle, even though he may not be in the heat of it. So then we, we pointed out that with the last three pieces of armor, that is the sword and the helmet and the shield, that those implements were taken up at the moment of battle. So, in other words, they, they may be in the camp and they would be wearing these, these regular pieces of armor, but at the time they were to go into battle, they would take up the shield, they would take up the sword, they would put on the helmet, and they would charge into battle. And so it is with these truths from God's Word about spiritual warfare in the Christian life. Okay? Uh... And so we went into some detail about what each of these are, basically describing uh, that these have a very practical application for our daily life. The Christian cannot live his life without a knowledge of God's truth. 
The Christian woman cannot be effective in her Christian life without a knowledge of God's truth. And so, uh, and as we've seen through, throughout the book of Ephesians, that knowledge plays a key part, a key role in the Christian life. That we're always growing in the knowledge of God. We're coming to know God in greater and greater degree. In fact, this was the very purpose for which we were made. It is to know God and to come to a knowledge of who He is and experience Him in an intimate and personal relationship. And so this knowledge uh, is, is, if you will, flowing from the truth of God. Because we live in a world where the ruler of this world is a ruler of darkness. He's a ruler who rules with lies and deceit. He's an enemy which wages war with schemes of deceit, as we have seen in, in previous weeks. That uh, we're in a struggle, right, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. And the way that we struggle with this enemy is through his schemes, his methods of deceiving us and causing us to sin. And so it is with the Christian, he must be armed with the truth of God's Word. If you will, it's very much like a belt which girds up our garments and holds all of our armor on. That truth is an essential part of the Christian life. And that's really what Paul is saying and liking it unto a belt. And then he says, the breastplate of righteousness. And we were talking about the fact that this is, is more uh, better understood as the practical righteousness that we possess as Christians being obedient to the Word of God, uh, as opposed to the positional righteousness that we possess in Christ. In other words, we're talking about uh, this uh, practical application of these things. In other words, remember that the first half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, is a doctrinal discourse which talks to us about positional reality. The first three chapters of Ephesians is position in Christ. The last three chapters of Ephesians is our practice in the Christian life. And from chapter 4, verse 1, through the end of the book, it's, it's one practical instruction after another. So it is with the section on the armor of God. Here, Paul is not talking about positional realities. He's talking about practical instruction. He's saying, this is how you apply all that doctrine I taught you in the first three chapters. And so when we look at the, the truth and the righteousness, and we look at the faith... And we look at the helmet. We look at these things. He's telling us how to practically apply these things in our life. Okay? Not that we don't have a perfect righteousness in Christ. In fact, as it says in chapter 1, verse 4 and following, that we've been chosen in Him, that we should be holy and blameless in His sight. And that in Him we have uh, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that we've been made holy and perfect through the atoning work of Christ on the cross and through the imputation of His righteousness to us. So we have a positional righteousness. But this righteousness here is that righteousness that we live out by obedience to God. In other words, we live a righteous life. We live a life of personal holiness. Okay, And that is how we arm ourselves on the battlefield of Christian life. 
We do it by obedience to the Word of God. Because if we disobey the Word of God, we're surely going to bring consequences for our folly, are we not? God is going to see to it that those consequences come to pass. We make foolish choices and we reap very difficult circumstances in life. Therefore, we need to make wise choices. Remember how back in chapter 5 he was telling us, be very careful how you live, he says. And don't be ignorant, he says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Right? And he tells us to walk in wisdom. To walk, he says, circumspectly. Right? And he's been instructing us for three chapters now how to live the Christian life and how to put off the old man and put on the new man. And he gives us very specific, practical instruction about how to live a righteous life. Amen? So it is that the living of this righteous life, the living out of the righteousness of God, is a key element in Christian battle. You cannot expect to be victorious if you don't obey the Word of God. What you can expect is discipline from God and difficulty and struggle and trial. Okay? And of course, we're all well aware that foolish choices bring about difficult, difficult circumstances in our lives. Amen? <laughs> what is it that we're constantly warning our, our young children about? About how they make decisions, how they use their brain and make discernment. And then our kids grow up and they leave the house. And what are we chiefly concerned about? The choices that they're going to go out and make. Why? Because God is providentially involved in their life. Remember when we were teaching from Ephesians chapter 6 and, and uh, the scripture said, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. For this is the first commandment with a promise. Right? And we talked about the fact that we as parents were to teach those kids that God was providentially involved in their life. Either to produce blessing in their life for obedience or discipline for disobedience. Amen? And so it is with us. So it is with us Christians. As we, as we live this righteous life, as, we've, as we wage this spiritual warfare, we need to obey God and His Word. Otherwise, we're not going to be victorious in the battle. Charlotte? Sometimes I get nervous about telling my kids that, you know, it's, because sometimes I know that because of their behavior that things are going hard in their lives. But it's hard sometimes to say, well, if you are to do this, then things are going to go good. Because I know, and that might make them think that God is not true to his word or God is not real if, you know, they are being obedient and things don't change the way in their mind they think they should change or their life isn't blessed. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, I mean, I, I communicate that, but I'm always a little nervous because I mm-hmm. think that sometimes that might make them think worse. I see that. As a promise. Yeah, so I would say that that's the next step in the teaching. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't mean if you live a life of excellent obedience to God that you're never going to face trial and struggle. Right? And we have beautiful examples of that in the Bible. People like Joseph. People like Job. The supreme example of that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives a life of perfect righteousness and dies on a cross at the hands of evil men. Right? 
And so there is a whole lot more to that discussion about God's providence that needs to be explained. Many righteous, godly Christian people down through the ages have become the subject of opposition to the gospel. There are men and women in church history who we very highly esteem, who have literally given their life because of their righteousness. Right? So just because you do the right thing, right, and this is what you're saying, doesn't mean that you're always going to live in perfect blessing, if you will, in perfect uh, peace and harmony with all men. In fact, Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Right? And Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, anybody who lives godly in this age will be persecuted. Amen? And look, if you live a perfect life, they're liable to hang you on a cross. Right? But, nevertheless, it is a proverbial principle, right? And generally speaking, that when we live in righteous obedience to God, God is going to bless us with His blessing, right? It doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to have a big white house on a hill with a Cadillac in the driveway and a nice plush couch, right? But it does mean that we will possess the peace of God, the joy of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and all of those things which are very highly esteemed by God and not by men will be ours. The blessing of God will be ours, regardless of the physical circumstances that we face in life, if, in fact, we're obedient to God. Amen? So that, that's a good point you bring out there, Charlotte. That there's a lot more to the teaching about God's providence than simply the general principle of, uh, of uh, obedience brings blessing, right? Obedience surely brings blessing. The thing to further understand is what does blessing look like? Mm-hmm. Amen? Amen? Okay, so with that, um, I'm going to take up where we left off. Last week we ended uh, talking about the shield of faith. Now, remember that this is one of those implements that you take up. And that's why it reads this way. It says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Right? We talked about the fact that the the shield was something that could be directed at various attacks. So if you will, it's a defensive weapon, but it's a weapon that is not just like a breastplate, which is kind of glued to your body, right? The shield is one where you actually kind of direct it. And if you will, with your will, you direct the shield. And so it is with faith. Faith is very much like this. Uh, the, the, The faith that we possess in God is something that we possess by degree. And it's something that we possess by our will. And let me explain what I mean. You know, God has given us all faith. The faith has come from God. But now the question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with the faith that you have in Christ Jesus our Lord? It's just like if you were a soldier and we equipped you with a shield and you got out on the battlefield, what would you do with it? Right? Right? 
And then, of course, we need to distinguish here because here's and here's what's really important about the practical application of the kind of faith that Paul's talking about. There is a faith that saves. It is a faith that repents of sin and lays hold of the Lord Jesus Christ because it has no merit in and of itself to be reconciled unto God. This is the faith that God grants in salvation. This is the faith that grants us eternal life and lays hold of the atonement of Christ on the cross. The kind of faith that Paul is talking about here is the kind of faith that we use in the warfare of Christian life. That when you face the difficult struggles and trials that are presented to you by the world and the flesh and the devil, you employ your God-given faith. Okay? It's the practical application of the faith that we have. Okay? And this is why Jesus instructed many times. He said, O ye of what? Little faith. Right? I like the way Pastor Tim describes that. He would put it something more like this. O ye of poor quality faith. Right? O ye of the kind of faith that doesn't win victorious in the battle. Right? And so here, and when you see Jesus making these kinds of expressions, he's talking about how we employ our faith in the, in the different melus of life, in the different uh, circumstances and trials and so on that we face. Well, here, it's very much like a shield on the battlefield. Okay? You have this faith. You direct it to uh, meet the attacks of the enemy. And what's interesting about the, the, uh, the vivid picture when talking about the shield of faith is that it says that the attacks that come from the enemy are flaming arrows, right? Flaming, they're not just arrows. They're not just missiles. <laughs> they're flaming arrows. And look what it says about what the effect of the shield is. It extinguishes the flame of the burning of the enemy, right? Another translation says it quenches it quenches, okay? And so, remember that this armor is the armor of God and not the armor of men. And therefore, it is well able to do what? To quench the flames of those arrows. Amen? And it is suited to fit us in a manner that will cause us to be victorious should we use it properly. Amen? Terry, were you going to comment? Um, would you call this faith, a sanctifying faith, whereas we um, experience the tests that that are in the trials that are given to us, that our faith tends to mm-hmm. grow. Sure, I, I think you could look at it that way, yeah. But I think the thing to emphasize is that this is something that we are choosing to use by our will. This is something where God has given a, a, a man uh, responsibility to make choices based on the knowledge that he has. And, and the same for a woman. That God gives us all the tools and all the armor. We got to do something with it. You know? And, and I think that uh, a lot of times uh, when, when we have Reformed doctrine, we, we always are leaning so heavily on sovereignty and an understanding that God is in all things and that God is providential in everything that at times is possible, at times it's possible for us to lose sight 
of all of the great warnings in Scripture that we have, that listen, God's given us everything we need. We need to do something with it. Amen? In fact, the entire last half of this book, from Ephesians chapter 4 through Ephesians chapter 6, is God saying to the church, take up all of the wonderful resources I've given you and put them to practice. Amen? And along with all of the resources that God gives us, also come the warnings for treating them very lightly and not using them as we should properly. And so if you will, yeah, I I would say that surely this faith as it's employed and used properly sanctifies us. And it is God who empowers that faith, right? Faith many times is simply the surrender to the will of God and the rest of the power comes from God to fulfill His will. Right? But at some point we have to make a choice with our will when we face temptation. Even though we do it by the power of God and with the knowledge of God and by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we make a real live choice with our will to obey or disobey God. Okay? And many times, listen, we face very difficult attacks from a very real and vicious enemy that we struggle with. Amen? Anybody been through an attack lately? Well, gird up your loins, because if it hasn't happened lately, it's liable to happen real soon. Amen? You with me? (laughs) You can talk to some of your brothers and sisters who were raising their hand. And if you're not going through a trial, I guarantee you they could use some help walking through theirs. Amen? All the more why we ought to take up the shield of faith. And when those missiles come a-flying, that's time not to be, O ye of little faith. Amen? It's a time to lay hold of all these resources that we have in Christ that that, uh, God has been so faithful to reveal to us. Right? Because as we said last week, and right here in 1 John 5.4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Whatever those principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness send our way, we shall overcome by faith. That's God's promise to us. Amen? And it may not look exactly like we think it ought to look when we're done. Okay? But listen, God is in control. It says in 1 John 4.4, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen? All the devils in hell can seek to assail you. But when your trust is in God, they shall not prevail. That's what the scripture says. Okay? That ultimately, the Lord cares for his own. He's the good shepherd. Amen? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, shall any of these separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? No. In fact, as Terry pointed out, those things simply sanctify us. Amen? Amen. Okay, so going on, he says, take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. 
Okay? How does this apply to the Christian life as practical instruction? Here's how it applies. Okay? What the apostle is discussing with the helmet of salvation is assurance. Assurance of salvation. Okay? This is an implement of Christian warfare. Assurance of salvation. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, he calls it the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. There he says, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see, what's covering that central part of our, of our anatomy is a helmet that Paul calls the hope of salvation. Which is to say that we're fully assured that we will be saved. Amen? That in fact we are saved. And that that salvation is an eternal salvation. Amen? Though the body they may kill, says Luther, God's truth abideth still. In all the Christian warfare, we have the overwhelming confidence of eternal life, which has been given to us freely by God through Christ. Okay? How do you, as a Christian, take the helmet of salvation and apply it to your daily life? Listen. Even if the spiritual forces of wickedness be so vicious as to take our very life, and only that by the permission of God, may I add, We shall be saved by the precious blood of Christ. So I'll ask you this question then. How can we lose? How can we lose? How can the Christian lose? What are they going to do? Kill you? Right? What is that for us? The doorway to glory. The portal to heaven. Amen? As a matter of fact, I think I'm longing for that. More than anything else in the world. Amen. Amen? So what are you going to do? Burn me at the stake? Well, God grant me the faith of such as John Tyndale. Amen? I had a preacher at the Shepherds Conference tell us about a young man who was the first martyr of Bloody Mary died in 1555. You know what his crime was? Reading the Bible publicly. Reading the Bible publicly. What a man of great faith. What a man of great faith. How then can we lose? Death for the Christian is the doorway to heaven. Amen? This is why he calls it the helmet of salvation. Put the hat on, how can you lose? (coughs) Amen? What are they going to do? Kill you? That's why Paul says in Romans, he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death may be a tool that the enemy uses, but it shall not ultimately (coughs) prevail against the Christian. Why? Because we possess eternal life in Christ. Amen? So, when we wage our warfare, 
We wage it fully assured of our salvation. What other courage could the martyrs possibly be equipped with that would give them the courage that they need to be faithful even unto death? Amen? And hasn't Jesus, our Lord, told you and me both in the first chapters of Revelation to be faithful unto death and I will give you life? Amen? Does not every Christian have the charge from God to be faithful unto death and not to love even his own life more than he does his Lord and Master? Amen? Every one of us needs the helmet. Every one of us needs to be fully assured of our salvation. And if you're not, you need to lay hold of it. You need to be fully assured of your salvation. You need to be absolutely confident that you are saved and in Christ and that you will never die. That's His promise to you. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me shall never die. Right? Amen? It should be our our firm conviction that we possess eternal life in Christ. Amen? And here he says, The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here is the great offensive weapon by which the enemy is slain, the Word of God. It is by this most powerful of all things that no devil can stand and every temptation is dashed to pieces. As the Christian is assailed by every lie and tempting attack, he or she employs the mighty promises of God's truth to render them helpless and of no effect. Even as Jesus met the tempter in the wilderness, the Christian is to cast down every lying temptation which stands opposed to God's truth. Amen? So you remember how Jesus went up into the wilderness for what purpose? To be tempted. You might read how in Genesis, the scripture says on many occasions, God tested Abraham. Amen? Felt like you've been through a test or two? Yeah? How is it that you uh, meet these struggles? Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Amen? Amen. You see, the struggle is over sin. Will you sin and profane the name of your God? Or will you cast down every temptation with the knowledge of God's word and by the power of his spirit? And thus glorify the name of your God. Amen? Read the Bible from, from cover to cover, and you will see this being the central struggle of every struggle that is there. And many places in the Old Testament, the enemy of Israel takes on a type and a shadow of the enemy that you fight in the Christian life. And the battle is always for Israel's obedience to God and God's mighty deliverance by His providence. Amen? 
But the warfare has to do with the temptation which is presented by the enemy and how you will fare by choosing to remain faithful and trusting in God regardless of what the circumstances look like. Right? And many times God presents us with tests which look like, how can we possibly win this, God? Here we are in the city and there's 185,000 Assyrians out there camped around the city. How will we possibly stand? Right? But the Christian employs his faith and what happens? He wakes up the next morning. I'm sorry, there was twice that many. 185,000 was the number that the angel of the Lord killed overnight. Amen? And God sent the enemy away packing. Right? How many thousands did Gideon go to warfare against with 300 men? Amen? Amen? Many times God asks us to do things, and we look and we say, how can we possibly do that, God? How will I possibly accomplish that? It doesn't make any sense to me. Let me ask you, does it make sense to you? Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, to the mount which I will show you and sacrifice him there as an offering. Make any sense to you? Not humanly speaking, it doesn't. Amen? But you see, God was testing Abraham to see if he would be obedient. Amen? Many times we face very difficult circumstances and very difficult things to understand. We go through many difficult types of trials and, and toils and snares. Christian, we need to remain obedient to God in the midst of it all. We don't know what the Lord is working. The results are not our prerogative. They are God's. What we do is we obey the voice of the Lord. Amen? This is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Amen? Amen. God desires obedience. And God blesses obedience. Even when the circumstances look beyond anything we've ever faced before. Amen? God help us. But listen, He's given us the sword of the Spirit. We come and we face the enemy and we have the promises of God. And we can cast down every single temptation that comes our way, even as the Lord did. And all Jesus did was say, it is written. In other words, God told me to do it like this. Therefore, I have no other choice. Amen? Imagine he was hungry after 40 days of fasting. You think he could have made a loaf of bread with a spoken word? He could have. But you see, the tempter came in tempting, and Jesus knew his Bible. In fact, he was the Word of God. (laughs) But in his humanity. 
which, by the way, he was 100% fully man while he was being tempted by the devil. Right? And he presented to the devil the glorious word of God. And he did what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, though we walk in these earthly bodies which are subject to sin, right? We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. In other words, our warfare is empowered by God. It's divinely powerful. It's the armor of God. Amen? He goes on. We are destroying what? Speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Do you know what those are? Speculations and every lofty thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God? Those are temptations sent to deceive you and cause you to sin. They they look kind of like this. I've been fasting for 40 days and the tempter comes and says, Look, there's a rock. Turn it into bread. Right? Many times he lays things out before us that hold out promise. They look to us as a very pleasurable thing. As Eve in the garden, looking at the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Right? And this, the scripture says it was pleasing to the eye. And there's the tempter. Eve. Right? Look at the fruit. Oh, no, no, she says, you devil. No, no. No, God told us not to eat of that fruit. Oh, but Eve. What God didn't tell you, right, was in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? And he's always got some perverted twist on the Word of God, doesn't he? Amen? By which he tries to deceive us. Right? But think of the revelation that we have, Christian, to live the Christian life. Think of how faithful God has been to give us all the tools necessary that we need, that we can make the right choice. Amen? And that we can discern what is good and pleasing, what is God's perfect will. Isn't that what it says in Romans 12, too? It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, he says, you will be able to discern what is God's good and perfect and pleasing will. Amen? When you let the scripture transform your thinking, right? Then you're able to cast down every speculation and every lofty thing that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. You need the word of God to have discernment. This is your offensive weapon by which you cast down and hack to pieces every temptation that comes your way. Amen? That's exactly what Paul's talking about. He says that we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. How do we do that, Paul? We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Amen? Now, how many thoughts is every thought? Every thought. Every thought. All the thoughts that you think. 
How is Paul saying that we wage this divinely powerful warfare? How do we do that? We take every speculation and every lofty thing and we make it and render it captive as obedience to Christ. And we say, no, devil, I'm not going to listen to your lies. I'm not going to follow your deceit. I'm going to cast that down by the word of God and I'm going to stand on his promises and God's going to bless me. Amen? This warfare is not a warfare of the flesh. It is a warfare of the spirit. And every time you are presented with temptation to sin, whatever that may look like, whatever that may look like in your daily life, here is your weapon by which you hack it to pieces. You are transformed and renewed in your thinking by the word of God. And you use your discernment that's been given to you by God. And you say, no. God's word is hidden in my heart. That's a sin against God. I will not do it. Amen? you got to make the decision with your head and with your heart before you're ever going to carry it out. Amen? If this be true, how shall we take up the sword of the Spirit? Right? Remember what he said? He said, taking up the shield of faith. He says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How are you going to take up the sword? How does that apply to your daily life? How are you going to take up this uh, Word which will cast down every speculation and every lofty thing that sets itself up against the knowledge of God? How are you going to pick that thing up? How are you going to take it out of its sheath? Okay? It's real simple. We must study, meditate on, and memorize the Bible. That's how. And you know, this isn't a new thing. This isn't something that just happened when they finally finished the canon of Scripture. Okay? God's people were memorizing God's Word as far back as recorded history. As a matter of fact, it's even assumed that before the law of Moses was written, that the entire faith was something that they call oral tradition. That was memorized and passed down all the way from Adam. You might ask the question, how did Abel know to bring a, an acceptable offering to the Lord? And how about the seven righteous sons, which proceeded from Adam all the way down to Noah? How did they know how to serve the Lord. How did Noah know to offer a sacrifice to God when he got off the ark? What was the tradition of his faith and how did it come to him? Right? And how was he living it out? Well, I want to tell you, he was hiding God's word in his heart that he might not sin against him. Amen? How about Job? Remember Job? Remember what Job's daily deal was? Pray for his children and offer up a sacrifice to God. Right? Job had a very real and living faith. Even though at the time of Job, recorded language is something that was few and far between. You may not know that. But you know, language, language and, and writing wasn't something that happened until very late in history. You know, some, they say somewhere between 1500 and 2000 B.C., is when they actually started to write with characters and record things. Job is older than that. 
right? And Noah older than him, right? So the point is, is that we study, we meditate on, we memorize the Bible. We should have the Word of God hidden in our hearts and ready to meet the tempter even as Jesus did in the wilderness. You know, he didn't hide the Word on his coffee table. You with me? Yeah. Uh, you get the point here? Where did he hide the Word? In his heart. In his heart, right? Psalm 119.9 and following. How can a young man or woman keep their way pure? Right? By keeping it according to thy word. He says there, With all my heart I have sought thee. Do not let me wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. You see... We're not carrying the Bible around with us 24-7. And every time a temptation comes up, hmm, let me look at my concordance. What do I do here? Right? The Word of God is to live inside of our hearts. It's to be that which captivates our every thought. How many thoughts were we taking captive and rendering them captive and obedient to Christ? Right? He says we take every thought captive, every thought captive, and we, we render it obedient to Christ. How else can we live this life? How else can we live a righteous life in such a profane world? Amen? I don't know about you, but it's a constant warfare for me. I wage war in my thought life. At times, it is a vicious warfare. Amen? I don't know about you. That describes the way I'm presented with my daily Christian life. And I'll tell you what, I have sought God with all of my heart. And I find the Word of God able and well capable of making every thought obedient to Him. Amen? What issue that do we face in life that is not addressed by the Word of God? At what point, at what juncture, at what crossroad do we come to in life and we can't, just can't make a decision because God hasn't told us what to do? Not a thing. Not a thing. Not a thing. You may say, well, God didn't tell me to take a job. Should I take a job at Intel or Sandia Labs? Where should it be? Right? Been through that struggle before? Yeah? Maybe not that one in specific, but one very much like it. What happens? Right? Well, basically, you have freedom in Christ to make a choice based on your your circumstances. And you use the wisdom that God's given you, and you make the best choice. Amen? God didn't say it was a sin to work at Intel. Right? But He said if you go to work over there, and you might have better, better benefits or something than working over here, then maybe you better go over there because it will be more beneficial for your family. But you know what? If you go over there, you might have to drive 45 minutes every day. That's going to be an hour and a half every day away from your wife and your kids. And this other place is five minutes away. But they pay more money. Well, what should I do? Well, what's more important? Money or family? Has God addressed that? He has, right? So what do we do? We use a little bit of practical wisdom and we make a choice that pleases God. Amen? 
You know, if he hasn't addressed it specifically, he's addressed it by principle. Amen? Amen? And so we got to take every thought captive. And we got to run it through the filter of God's Word. And then we come out with that which pleases God. And that's what we choose to do. Amen? We take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He goes on there. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 and following. It reads like this. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So here Paul says, you know, we're in this great struggle. We're in this great warfare. So we've got to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, he says. Right? He says, put on the full armor of God that you might be able to stand against this enemy. These uh, rulers and powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places that we're struggling with. Right? And he says, so you take up all these things. What do you take up? You take up truth. You take up righteousness. Right? You take up the peace of God. You take up the faith. You take up the assurance of salvation. You take up the Word of God. And this is how you meet this enemy. And this is what he says about it all. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. In other words, you're utterly dependent on God if you hope to stand in this warfare. Amen? Because let me tell you, you ain't near as powerful as that old dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil. He's a bad dude. Right now, he's been given authority in this present world. In fact, Jesus called him the ruler of this world. Right? You are dependent on God for his power. You're dependent on God for his protection. You're dependent on God for his wisdom. You're dependent on God for everything that you need to live the Christian life. See, that's the paradoxical thing about it. You have all the resources that you need in Christ. Question is, are you going to employ them? Right? Well, Paul tells us the key right here to being able to lay hold of all those pieces of armor and employ them. He says, with all prayer and petition. With all prayer and petition. The picture is a Christian on his or her knees, bowing in humility before God, saying, Oh God, please help me. Amen? That's how we're going to be victorious in warfare. That's how we're going to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And the Scripture says, The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. You believe it? Amen. Then why don't you pray more? 
Well, let me tell you, I can ask myself the same question. Okay? If I believe all these glorious promises of God, then why don't I pray more? Why am I so much like Peter? Right? We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Son of God is about to be crucified. He's here. Guys, come on. Pray with me, guys. Pray. Let's pray. Oh, oh, my soul, I'm being tempted. Right? And all the disciples are what? Sleeping. 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 Sawing logs. Slumbering off. Wandering. (coughs) The shepherd's about to be struck. And the sheep are about to be scattered. And where are the disciples? Snoozing. Sounds a lot like me. Sound like you? Right? This is why Paul tells us. He says you can't fight this warfare except with all prayer and petition. (laughs) You have to lay hold of God. You have to trust in God. And that's Jesus' lesson to us at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's on his knees about to face the greatest temptation of his life. Where is he finding his strength? It is in that time of prayer where he lays hold of God. And he lays hold of the resources of God. So that he can wage that war. So that he can be victorious in that battle. Amen? And you see kind of why Paul sums up all these things with this idea of prayer? Right? He says, with all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit. Right? In summing up this great section on spiritual warfare, Paul now leads us to the crowning jewel of all our battles. Prayer. He says that we should pray with all prayer and petition. That is to say that we should pray for everything and everyone, and in every way, both public and private, and that these prayer prayers are a petition to God. Think about what he's saying. You know, he says, with all prayer. Well, what are you talking about, Paul? What do you mean, all prayer? Right? Basically, every struggle, every trial, every temptation, every toil you face. You face it with prayer. And you pray for you. You pray for them. You pray for your mama. You pray for your papa. You pray for your friend, your daughter, your cousin, the unsaved, your enemies. Pray for them all. With all prayer. Amen? Well, how should we pray? Well, pray together. Pray by yourself. Pray on your knees. Pray while you drive. Pray while you walk. With all prayer. You see, he's emphasizing the variety of prayer. Just like you're going to face a variety of trials and a variety of battles in a variety of ways. You know, I can't tell you how many times I'm talking and ministering to somebody. And, you know, somebody's saying something to me that's very difficult that they're facing. And I'm thinking, what can I do for this person? I have no resources to help this person. And so I'll be praying while they're talking to me. Oh, God, help me. God, give me some kind of wisdom to lead them to your resources. God, give me something to tell them so that they'll trust in you and and find you to be the, the help and the refuge that you are. 
And right in the midst of that little struggle, I'm, I'm saying, God, help me. I'm just a man. I don't have any resources to help people, God. Right? And, you know, you get into difficult situations, you know. You, you, your kids are driving you nuts, you know. You're working with the guy next door at work, and he's just mean and ugly. And, and at times you get in these difficult spots. What do you do? How are you going to take up all that armor? I don't know about you. I just start crying out to God in my heart. And I say, God, I don't want to sin against you. Lord, I don't want to lose my temper. Lord, I don't want to blow it. God, help me. Help me right here, God. Help me right now, God. Amen? Got to lay hold of God if you want to do the right thing. Many times the temptations are strong. Are they not? They are. The flesh wants to do evil so badly. What are you going to do? Well, if you want to be victorious, you need to lay hold of God. Amen? You need to employ those promises by faith, with all prayer. Amen? And these, Paul says, are petitions to God. Petitioning God. Think about that. Petitioning God. Our prayers have one to whom they are addressed, and He alone has the power to grant our requests. Amen? It's an interesting thing about prayer. Prayer expresses a complete dependence on God. I think here's one of the reasons why we don't pray more than we do. Okay? Because we're so proud, we think we can do it all on our own. So we don't pray as we ought. We don't humble ourselves in recognition and say, God, I know that today is going to be another day in this world. And I'm going to have some real struggles. God, I need your help. God, please help me. You see, you have to humble yourself if you're going to pray. Because you got to go to God and say, God, you got all the resources and I've got none. Father, I need your help because I'm weak. Lord, I need strength. How can I face the things I'm facing, God, without your strength? You see, prayer by its very nature is a, is a, a thing of humility. It's a thing of dependence. Right? It's not to say that we don't go to God and thank God. We do that all the time. We thank God. And that's an attitude of our prayer. That's something that seasons our prayer. Right? But many times our prayers, God, God, I need your help. God, I'm facing this. God, I'm facing that. I want to tell you, God is disposed to hearing our prayers. And I want to tell you that God delights in answering our prayers. He's not waiting up there with a big old stick ready to crack you on top of the head. That's not God. Are you kidding? He's God our Father. Creator of the ends of the earth. The Scripture says He is love. The Scripture says He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts by which we cry what? Abba. Abba. Daddy. Lord, I'm so dependent on You. What Daddy is ready to crack his young son on the head. Not a one. 
Many times the son needs a crack on the head, and God will do that when we need it. But the idea is when we go to praying, it's a prayer of dependence, and God is disposed. He's ready to answer. He wants to meet our needs. He wants to help us. He delights in being our God and delivering us from our difficult trials. By this He'll be glorified. And then they will know that I am the Lord. Amen? Amen? Who does what? Who exercises loving kindness. Amen? Amen. God is disposed to answering our prayers. I'll end with this. Proverbs 15.8 says it like this. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is His delight. Amen? How about John 16.4? Until now you have asked for nothing in My name. Ask, Jesus says, and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Why does God answer prayer for you? So that you'll be joyful. How good is God? How good is God? Are there words? How about this? Luke 11. And I say to you, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. That's a pretty profound promise. Believe it? James says you, ask, you, ha- you, uh, you have not because you ask not. Amen? Oh, what needless toils we bear because we do not take it to God in prayer. Amen? Listen, Jesus says, Ask and it shall be given to you. Listen to what he says. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. Amen? In other words, God is disposed to answer in your prayer. God is going to answer your prayer. Amen? So don't twist that around. Sometimes the answer is no. Right? No. Right, but what does the Scripture say? The Scripture says, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Sometimes the answer is no, and it's always for your good. Whether it's yes or no, it's always for your good. Amen? Amen. Shall we pray? God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, God, that you would impress it upon our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see all of these profound truths. And Lord, that I pray that this week as we get out into the world, and Lord, we're living our daily life and we're faced with temptations that, God, you would bring to remembrance that you have given us mighty tools for warfare. Oh, Lord, that we even have your strength and your power in which, in which to wage it. I pray, God, that you'll bring to our remembrance that you are disposed to hear and answer our prayers. I pray, God, that you would grant us prayers that are according to your will and prayers that you delight to answer, God. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would give us mercy, God. Oh, Lord, that you would uh, 
Be gracious to us in the day of our trial, in the day of our temptation, Father. We thank you, Lord, that you're so near. We honor you. We praise you. For your glorious name, amen.